Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Guten Tag, Herr Machen. I am Ron Kolick, your host, right here in the United States. With me all the way across the pond is the gold standard and the ghost hunting Mr. Steve Parsons. Hello, Kanichiwa. Yeah, Japanese? Yeah. There you go. So, you're back home. I am. All back home, safe and sound. Apart from, your... apart from a very nasty fall at Logan. You had what? I had a very nasty falling over incident at Logan. Spilt what my happened? coffee. Well, I spilt my coffee as well. What happened? Perfectly level floor. You know me. Too much to drink, probably. Really? Yeah. Spilt my coffee. I hope it was on Dylan. And it hurt like hell. Spilling your coffee or falling? Uh, falling. Oh. Dylan just laughed. Of course he would. As would I. As would you. Of course. Yeah, I hit the floor like a sack of potatoes. Oh, I love it. Anyways, uh, I'm glad to have you back over there. I know that your co-host there for the West Files is happy to receive you. <laughs> yeah. Apparently so. Mm. So that's all good news. So anyways... Um, Shouldn't you, you have know, actually said, you're sorry I'm back over here? Yeah, I did. Not, Didn't I'm, you hear me? No, you said, I'm glad I'm, you're glad I'm back over here. Same thing. Glad, um, sorry. Just the influx. Just glad to get rid of me. You know, it's it's every uh, every morning I woke up and I, I had a bit of withdrawal, like I should have been at the office or something. <laughs> Didn't happen. Yeah. I miss the office. Mm. So anyways, uh, joining us today is somebody who was supposed to be at Spirit Quest. Unfortunately, they, he had a problem with his uh, Jeep, and uh, he wasn't able to make it. So he did some prep work on it. So I figured I'd give an opportunity to those who went to Spirit Quest and were looking forward to uh, hearing from him would have him on the show. So without further uh, ado, let me introduce to you the... Uh, well, the uh, I guess he's the founder of uh, Rise Up Paranormal. He's a paranormal investigator and also uh, quite interested in Bigfoot. He is Ken DaCosta. Hello, Ken. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? I take it you've traded the Jeep in now for something European and reliable. Yeah, well, I fell prey to our mechanical overlords that day, so uh, I was punished for that. But uh, I appreciate the opportunity to come back on and talk to uh, talk to you folks. Um, you know, believe me, nobody missed being there more than I. We did, and I guess but, uh, we survived. We uh, we uh, filled your slot with a uh, panel discussion with uh, Jeff Belanger, Steve, and myself, and uh, that went well. So all was good. Life goes on. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. So you are a paranormal investigator, but you all have also have a great interest in Bigfoot, uh, which is paranormal too, I guess, depending on how you look at it. So do you yeah. want to tell me how you got interested in Bigfoot? 
Oh, it was pretty much since the time I was I was I was a little kid. You know, I wasn't interested in that much in ghosts and haunted houses. You know, the first thing that I ever read was, um, you know, about cryptozoology and the Loch Ness monster, Ogopogo, and all the rest of that kind of stuff. Those books were pretty available, and um, you know, read things like Von Donegan and um, you know some of the other people who were uh, talking about this kind of thing. Uh, as a child, so uh, I was always fascinated with the idea that uh, anything might be out there that we don't truly understand because I guess that's just the way my my brain works where I, I just like a good mystery and there's no better mystery than one that um, people are having a hard time solving, so you know, as much as we um, you know, do these endeavors with haunted houses and, and the spirit world and things like this. Um, this is basically my roots, and I always enjoy talking about it. Have you ever gone on an expedition to try to find Bigfoot? Oh, yeah. I've been on maybe a dozen of those. We haven't uh, we haven't found him at this point, but uh, right. over the years, I've hooked up with some people who go on these kind of expeditions and... Um, you know, I really enjoy them. Uh, no one, I mean, there's always an expectation that maybe around the next corner we'll be able to get some kind of evidence. And, you know, you hear some weird noises that uh, may be attributable to known animals. Uh, and a lot of times people think they hear the knocks and things like that. But to this point, I haven't had any sightings. And occasionally you'll come across a footprint for the most part. We can... You know, we can kind of figure that out, that maybe it's not a primate or anything like that. But uh, I just enjoy going out with uh, these folks and, um, you know, getting out into the wild, spending the night a little bit. Because um, it's, it's forced me to look into um, and research a lot of animal behavior and uh, spend a lot of time in the woods and being kind of a country boy. That's, uh, that's right up my alley. I actually have so many questions in regards to this, and and uh, one of the things you just said was one of the things I was going to ask about, and you said you went to go and spend the night in the woods, but I mean, mm -hmm. most photographs I see of, of uh, Bigfoot are in the daytime, so is, is it like ghost hunting, we just go at night to, because it's cooler, or, or is there any logic to to it? Yeah, well, here's the thing that, that puzzles me, because um, if you look at the great ape family, and there are four categories, there are gorillas, orangutans, chimpanzees, and us, human beings. Um, one of the things we don't have, unless there's a creature out there that has um, undergone some type of evolutionary process, is that we really don't see well in the dark. Uh, gorillas, for example, they are, they get about 12, 13 hours of sleep at night. They bed down at dusk. They're early risers. And this is the kind of behavior we see in them. So, um, when you're looking at things, you hear them on these shows when they see eye shine. Uh, eye shine is basically a membrane behind the retina. It's sort of a retro reflector that takes visible light and um, bounces it back into the retina. I mean, deers, dogs, cats, horses, a few other animals have it to be able to um, to see at night. But um, apes, primates, we, we don't have that ability that we're aware of. So uh, our hunting and gathering, et cetera, and so forth are mostly done during the day. So, I mean, there have been sightings at night. Why they go out at night, 
I don't know. Maybe it's a plot device. Maybe it looks a little creepy, as you suggest. I'm not sure. But for some reason, there seems to be a suggestion that these um, creatures have a different type of physiology than, than we're aware of. But most of the time when we're walking around, it's always during daytime. Ken, um a thought occurred to me because you said um, in your in your opening comments about noises and about sounds. Yeah. Now, has anybody ever sort of um, compiled a database, an audio database of known animals, and Good then point. recorded the anomalous sounds? Because it, it's it's very simple to do now with with I mean, we can do it on the fly now with iPads in 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 locations under investigation, where we have a database of known sounds, doors, footsteps, people talking, uh, even team members. And then we can compare an unusual or unexpected sound against that database. If there was an unusual animal that had a distinctive call or sound. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there are, uh, there are a tremendous that. amount of databases, Steve. Anthropologists uh -huh. and people who study animals um have those type of things where they actually have a vocal footprint and a lot of times when these sounds are recorded if you have an in with some of these people and send them off to a university or um, someone who studies these things at a zoo there is a database where they can compare um any sound out there to known animals because every one of them has some type of vocal footprint uh -huh. to them um, and on rare occasions, the best they can say is, well, okay, we can't really identify this. It's not a fox. It's not a, not a moose. It's not a bear. But usually it's pretty simple. Screech owls, you know, barn owls and things uh -huh. like that are a lot of culprits where they think there are howls coming yeah. back. Yeah. But well, we've had if exactly you're willing to put the time in... Um, and analyze these things, it's pretty easy to eliminate known animals from what's being recorded out there. Do you find many of the Bigfoot researchers actually put that time in, or are they just um, a little bit like the modern ghost hunter, uh, all believing that every screech, bump, and noise in the, in the woods is a Bigfoot? Yeah, unfortunately, I think you can correlate that to a lot in the uh, paranormal field in terms of the spirit world and things. Mm. There are a lot of credible people who really want an answer to these things. So the answer is not a blanket statement, but unfortunately, I think a vast amount of people want to believe what they want to believe, and they're not uh -huh. willing to take the steps to deeply analyze their data um, for fear, it's going to be self-defeating. Um, so they present these things really because that's what they want to get out there. That's what they, they want to believe. Um, the bad part about that is we spend an inordinate amount of time on vast amount of data um, that really is explainable rather than focusing on those rare occasions when it's not. So I think that you know, whether it's ufologists or cryptozoologists, you know, uh, ghost hunters, whatever the case may be, I think there's some guilt of that in, um, you know, in every facet of this type of thing. Right. 
one thing I did want to ask you is I know in the in the ghost field, I mean, we we get uh, you know contacted by someone because they're having haunting experiences and we do an investigation or we go to a place that's known to be. How do uh, big photologists uh, select their locations and why do they go to these particular locations? Yeah, I think there's certain uh, characteristics of a location. If you're looking at a primate, you're looking at, first of all, things like geography. Um, you're looking at uh, kind of areas that aren't well populated, you're looking at certain um, environmental characteristics, you know, for the most part, you know, these these creatures are herbivores. So you're looking for plant life, you're looking for water, which every living thing needs, you're looking for desolate regions, unspoiled areas. And then you take into account uh, eyewitness testimony. If there's a certain region that there's been a sighting, of course, you know, you, you, you congregate there. You know, that's where you're going to go to see if you can have the same thing. So I think it's a combination of both. You know, it's the environment that a primate would thrive in, which is usually uh, a wet area, um, a desolate area. And then coupled with the eyewitness testimony, it's probably a good place to start. Like like any of this, you know, there's a UFO scene, such and such a place. You visit that place. You know, someone says their house is haunted. You visit that place. So a lot of this is just based on who came before you that had an experience and what they report being there. You said something interesting then that I picked up on. Um, you said that the Bigfoot is a herbivore. <laughs> I mean, is there any evidence that it that it doesn't eat rabbits or it you know that it's any particular? I mean, have we got Bigfoot no. scat? Yeah, I think we're going by generally the behavior of great apes, apes in um, in particular, Steve, because obviously there have been reports where they say these creatures, uh, and there's been trace evidence found that they will hunt deer, so they be you know. I think like anything else, um, creatures evolve, you know, whatever the food source is, if it's protein or whatever the case may be. So apes, by the, for the most part, are herbivores, but this is not to say that they don't adapt to their environment and what's available to them. So I would never rule out the idea that uh, oh. they become carnivorous as well. Uh, I, 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 I wouldn't I mean... go that far. No, I mean, it's fascinating because, uh, you know, you see it with polar bears and you see it with, with the other large bears and, and, and indeed um, some of the other of the monkey family, that, they, that they've that they really evolved to eat our rubbish. You know, they're in the bins. I mean, I, you, you might also, you know, it wouldn't, for me, it wouldn't be a huge leap to find Bigfoot rummaging through the trash cans. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that it's uh, almost a when in Rome type thing. Um, you adapt to whatever food source is available. If you're an apex predator, you're probably not going to get a lot of competition in a certain area. So if there's an absence of, uh, of animals, of a protein source, um, I think we're the same way. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, if we're stranded somewhere and there's nothing else that we can consume, we're going to just take advantage of the plant life is, uh, uh, that's there, that's available to us. So um, 
I think instinctually that these creatures absolutely could um, take whatever is available in a certain area and uh, actually learn how to uh, hunt, catch, kill, eat. Or rummage through the trash. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, why, you know, it's that's quite logical because, you know, we get even humans that, that rummage through the trash to, you know, the the instinct to survive is, is the number one instinct, I think, next to mating, I believe. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a pattern of behavior we see within some of the other big predators like the bears. And, um, and over in India, of course, some of the apes and chimpanzees, they, you know, they've all taken to the scraps of man's table. And um, I've, I've always been quite surprised that Bigfoot hasn't seemed to have noticed this um, evident, you know, uh, food source, i.e. us. I don't yeah, mean it... in terms of eating us. I mean, you know, the, the things we leave behind. Yeah, I think that you have to, there's certain characteristics. So if you if you take the mountain gorilla, for example, there's like 790 mountain gorillas that we know of. You know, they haven't gone undetected. Um, a gorilla needs about 12 square miles to harvest food and to establish a territory for themselves. Um, any species needs to live in population because they need to breed um, to endure. So, and there's also usually a social order, you know, male, female, infant, adolescent, alpha, male, beta, male. Uh, you need a sustainable environment. You need food source. You need shelter. You need a, a hospitable climate. And uh, y y within that, you have to be able to adapt. You know, you have to be able to migrate or uh, adapt to seasonal changes. And that's why a lot of these creatures that found mountains... Uh, typically they would come down into the lower altitudes for subsistence, you know, on whatever surviving plants and animals are there. Um, apes don't hibernate, you know, that, that we know of, you know, um, and that's basically because uh, they don't exist in harsh climates, Yeti notwithstanding, um, because they would have to, their physiology is not made to, to uh, exist in the harshest climates there are on this planet. So all of those things together, you can say that they are characteristics of any great ape, and that includes us. You know, we need shelter, we need food, we need to adapt to our environment, etc., and so forth. But, you know, they have hair and we have down jackets. That's about that's about uh, the difference <laughs> there. God, yeah, thank God for the damn jacket. That's correct. You know, another thing I was curious about is, you know, what goes into, uh, you know, putting an exhibition to get expedition together. I mean, what type of equipment do you take, and and you know, what's the protocols and and so forth. Well, I think the first thing you have to do is. Um, take stock of uh, the environment that you're going to be in. It's hilly um, fields, um, mountainous regions, whatever the case may be. So the first thing you have to do is pack up the gear that's going to make uh, your stay as, um, as safe as possible. Um, and that's anything from as simple as footwear to, you know, how you dress layers of clothing, depending on where you're going. Um, you know, you, you, you know, 
simple things like food, tents, just those kind of things. Uh, I would always suggest that somewhere in your party you have somebody experienced to go into these type of um, these type of environments. Uh, it's not just as simple, and unfortunately, we see too much of it where, you know, a bunch of people see this on TV, and they go off into the woods, and nothing happens to them except, like, one of them, like, falls down a mountain or, you know, breaks an ankle uh, on something. So there's a certain awareness and respect above all things you have to have for your environment. I don't care if you're at sea or if you're up in the mountains or, or where you are. Uh, in terms of documentation, I mean, it pretty much runs the gamut from video cameras. Obviously, uh, everyone has cell phones right now, uh, recording instruments, so you can get these things audibly and visibly uh, and all the rest of that, thing, that, that type of stuff. So there's a correlation between what we bring into haunted houses and haunted places and what we're using to document out in the field. Some people, if they can afford it and they have access to it, will bring a, a thermal imaging camera, which probably is, unlike ghost hunting, a very, very, very important tool and a very useful tool to bring on these type of things, you know, because you're actually looking for body heat and things like that. But above all, I would say have an experienced woodsman or woodswoman or have a, have a Sherpa guide ready to go that is going to, um, you know, fill you in on what, you, what you're going to need to bring, where you're going, and how you're going to adapt to that uh, particular environment, depending on how long you, you plan on staying there. So one of the things that I, I would think that you would need versus the ghost hunting is, for instance, would you bring in materials to make plastic casts in case you did find footprints? Would you bring in uh, sample bags? Because, you know, unlike ghost hunting, you're, you're into more physical evidence than you are uh, visual or audio evidence. Yeah, I would think um, whatever your uh, whatever your substance of choice is, plaster of Paris is usually um, usually the substance of choice in uh, in order to cast footprints. Uh, bringing sample bags in is a good idea. The problem with something like that that they've endured, and I'm not suggesting that it's a useless exercise because you should. Because when people look for hair samples and things like that or scat or all the rest of that, unfortunately what happens is these creatures thrive in wet climates and wet climates aren't conducive to sterile pieces of evidence. Um, you know, most of what's collected is known either a bear or a fox or, or something like that. Uh, with some exceptions, but it's difficult to get a, a pure and pristine sample to take any kind of uh, DNA from it. But with that being said, you know, you keep trying because, you know, maybe whatever sample you get isn't that old. Uh, maybe you're hot on its trail or something like that. Um, but those kind of things, uh, absolutely, you're right. Those are, um, those are crucial and very important, uh, pieces to make sure that someone at least, you know, uh, make sure that they pack and are responsible for. How, how do you the temptation to carry a rifle would be, uh, hard. that was my question, Steve. You read my mind. <laughs> 
Uh, what's the question again? I said for, uh, it was a comment actually. I said for me, I think the temptation to carry a rifle would be very high on my list of things to do. <laughs> well, you'd be surprised. Uh, a handgun or a rifle. Uh, sometimes, depending on where you're going, mm-hmm. you know, uh, is not a bad idea as long as someone is licensed and trained and very proficient and competent at doing mm-hmm. it. But for the most part, those would be in very extreme conditions. If you're going in a certain area where it's known that you have bear, you know you have mountain lion. Um, you know, a walk out in the woods for the most part uh, doesn't really require weaponry. But on those more extreme cases where you're traveling up into mountain regions and uh, where there's a lot of caves and crevices, where uh, these animals thrive, um, you have to understand that you're entering their world right now. Um, So you have to respect that. And for the most part, they will stay away from you. But there's always that chance, depending on where you are, that, uh, you know, there may be a threat to you. So I think it all depends on um, where it is that you plan on going. Um, And hopefully... um, you know, there haven't been a lot of attacks on these type of expeditions, um, you know, and maybe at night, that's why. But um, I would be uh, I would be very careful if um, you're planning on going into these regions where these animals, uh, this they rule their domain. Right. But uh, as far as I know, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, there are no... Uh, Bigfoot is not on a dangerous uh, species list, so it's it's very legal, actually, to shoot one of these things? Uh, actually, uh, it's not, depending on where you are in California, for example, because it's, uh, especially up in Northern California, where there's so many Bigfoot expeditions, um, there are, depending, I guess, I'm not sure if the state rules or the county or the town itself, I think they may have some type of, um, uh, autonomy for that, but there are places that have said shooting these creatures is not allowed and they are on an endangered species list in, um, in a great many areas across the country, not all, obviously, but, uh, I know Northern California, Oregon, Washington state, um, you may run into that type of thing where they don't want you shooting these things. How can we put a creature on a, an endangered species list when there's no proof it exists? Uh, I don't have an answer for that. You probably have to ask the various groups that usually, you know, a lot of times people do this because it is, um, it simply gets them some type of attention and draws attention to that particular town or region or something like that. Um, Interestingly, Ron, I mean, the Scottish government have a protection order on Nessie. Yeah, well, we all know Nessie exists. But anyway, speaking about things that do exist, and the break is coming, and I know that exists, so we're going to have to take a break. Uh, You're listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International right here on Tojanet and Pararex Radio with Steve Parson and Ron Kolick. And our very special guest today is Kenda Carson. We're talking Bigfoot, which is an intriguing subject. I really don't spend enough time thinking about it and probably spend too much time already. My brain is hurting. Uh, Anyways, we'll be right back after the following messages.
Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Hi, Steve Parsons here looking for sea monsters in Tenby, West Wales. And I'll be over in New England looking for your sea monsters this coming fall. Join me, Ron Kolek, and a host of others at Spirit Quest 2018. We'll see you there. And spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Two of Ghost Chronicles or Bigfoot Chronicles International, <laughs> as, it, as it has become tonight, with New England's own Van Helsing, me the gold standard, and our special guest tonight, Ken DeCosta. Whilst we were uh, talking to Ken in the first half, uh, I'm flipping through the news items, the parry news, and from the 12th of October 2018. So only a few days ago, a man in England was surprised by a monkey-like animal that he says came out of the woods in the county of Suffolk. Resident Jeff Knight said he's looking for a, he was look, out looking for a big big cat when he heard a primate vocalization and crashing sounds coming from thick vegetation as clear as day. A monkey goes woo woo. Then I turned and saw it at night reports. As he saw an animal mask, mask, matching the physical features of a gorilla mixed with the general shape of a man. It was the colour of a chimp. It walked fast with its, on its hind legs like ours and not in a chimp-like fashion, knocking branches aside as it went along. It would, its arms were at least a third longer than a human's and it was probably about 5 feet 8 inches tall. Uh, the creature, he says, then disappeared back into the woods, um, and at this point he became very panicky. Uh, he describes himself as 250 pounds and pretty fearless, but he just needed to get out of there. Mm-hmm. Could have been so Trump. Well, yeah. So maybe we have. Well, I mean, there have been. There is actually a Bigfoot research group in the UK. Really, there it is. But anyways, we have a couple of questions from the chat room, so I want to ask Ken before we uh, forget them. So, Ken, you're still there, right? Yep. Okay, uh, this is from CC. She says, are there any known territorial markers for Bigfoot, like uh, urinator, branches, stones, etc.? Well, what happens is, uh, again, we go back to ape behavior. A lot of times there will be broken branches that will be pointing in a certain direction. Um, ostensibly what they say, Tori, or it's some kind of a warning to a possible predator or intruder to stay away. 
this is my territory. Uh, the other thing, the other thing with ape behavior is that, uh, they tend to make nests. Um, they don't just like bed down on gravel or something like that. They will build elaborate nests. Uh, we've evolved to the point where we make beds, you know, so it cuts down the chances of us falling out of a tree being human beings. So, um, a lot of times what they will do is actually bend and break branches to make shelters for themselves. Um, this is consistent with some ape behavior. So we kind of project that into these creatures who combine instinct with, um, they've developed to the point with the ability to reason. So yeah, absolutely. There are certain, there are certain things that uh, people on expeditions who are experienced look for that may be telltale signs that uh, there could be a creature in that particular area. Okay. We, have a, we have another question here in the other chat room uh, from John, uh, who asks, has anyone ever caught a real Bigfoot as opposed to some fake Bigfoot? Yeah, in a word, no. Uh, there have been some pretty elaborate hoaxes done. Um, down in Georgia, for example, yeah. there were a couple of guys who uh, had a Bigfoot in a freezer, and they sent out pictures of this. And uh, I'm not sure if it was one of these one of these tabloids, you know, had um, offered them fifty thousand dollars for the body. So uh, there it is in the freezer, and what what it was was just an amalgamation of a lot of different animals, you know, uh, intestines from this animal and fur from that animal. So they had put all this together, and uh, it was just an elaborate hoax, and eventually they got to the point where they had to admit it. And this has happened a couple of times, and people just eventually have to cop to it. And uh, usually their explanation is, well, you know, it was just a joke. We were just joking and everything like that. But the unfortunate aspect of this is one hoax will undo a thousand pieces of compelling evidence. And that's true whether we're talking about Bigfoot, Nessie, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs. Um, it's just become too easy now photographically and in video to fake these type of things. So uh, sometimes we fall prey to those, but there's never been one captured alive. That's a great shame. John just uh, asked a second supplementary question um, regarding the, the lack of remains of Bigfoot, suggesting or inquiring, is it possible that they, that they live in another dimension? Uh, yeah, we're, uh, that is one of like maybe five theories um, as to what these creatures are. For Nessie as well. <clears throat> yeah, what, what's that again, Steve? Sorry, uh, I said it's one of the theories that's also been proposed many times about Nessie. Yeah, well, um, there is a theory out there. It's more of a Fordian type of theory, and it was first really put forward by a guy named John Keel, who wrote about uh, the Mothman and Bigfoot, and what he posits is that these aren't interdimensional creatures, but ultra. And uh, th because there's been a correlation between UFO sightings and sightings of Bigfoot, they kind of you know connected those dots, and it's theorized that they are either aliens themselves, or perhaps they're in servitude of an alien race or perhaps an alien race is protecting them. So um, 
from my point of view, uh, that's um, John Keel certainly believed in it, and a lot of people have um, subscribed to that theory. For right now, I kind of choose to sort of, you know, come at the aspect of dealing with the natural world first. And um, let's get that out of the way before we, you know, take a leap into something like that. But, I mean, um, if nothing else, I have an open mind on it. And I've done a little bit of, you know, research into, you know, the Fordian theory and Keel's theory. And it's it's interesting, but, um, you know, I guess that there's more work to be done on that. It's like anything else, you know, uh, it, it, it's a theory, but that is where it rests with me at this point. Okay, no, moving on. Go ahead, Steve. No, I was uh, moving on. I've just answered two, uh, uh, John's two questions. Uh, there are no further questions. Okay. So anyways, um, Ken, are there sightings of Bigfoot here in New England? Uh, yeah. Um, Maine is, uh, particularly, uh, you know, uh, you might call it a hot spot. Um, all, but I think in my state of Rhode Island, um, there was, uh, an episode of finding Bigfoot where, uh, some people had filmed what they saw was one in the woods. Um, I happen to think it was probably just a rotted stump or something like that. Uh, someone came to me a number of years ago with a report of a Bigfoot that had damaged their car. They lived in Rhode Island, and um, they were driving down a road, and this creature jumped out in front. She hit the brakes. The creature came down with both fists on the hood of her car, dented it badly, uh, ran off. She drove off and decided when she got home she would just tell her husband that uh, she went to the mall and someone apparently a damage to the car because she didn't want to go into an explanation that she saw a hairy man on the road because she didn't, you know, think the husband would believe her. You know, unfortunately, there were, you know, this was years after the fact, so I wasn't able to go and see if there were hairs and, you know, any kind of trace evidence or take pictures of the car or something like that. But um, the short answer is uh, the Connecticut Valley is uh, another region where people claim to have a lot of sightings down there. So uh, I would have to say the short answer is yes, there have been reports, as you know, it's like any place else, there hasn't been anything substantive other than a few grainy photographs and um, eyewitness testimony. Right. I mean, we used to have a listener to the show, and, uh, and her name escapes me. Uh, Steve, maybe you remember her. She was from New Hampshire. She reported... Uh, seeing something on our property. Do you remember that, Steve, at all? Oh, I do. I don't remember the name, though. I um, can't either. <laughs> but I, do, I, do, I do recall the, the incident. And so uh, the other thing, I, I guess, following up on that is, is uh, what about the Bridgewater Triangle? We have, you know, reports of creatures like uh, the Pukwudgies in there. Uh, are there reports of uh, Bigfoot in the Bridgewater Triangle? Oh, there absolutely have been. Uh, giant snakes, puck wedgies, thunderbirds, Bigfoot, UFOs. I think that's where, um, you know, Lauren Coleman was the first to coin that term, the Bridgewater Triangle. Mm -hmm. um, and it's one of the more mysterious parts, uh, regions of New England, if not the entire country. 
And uh, it's getting a lot more attention now because of television. There's been some documentaries made on it. People come forward, even some law enforcement officials who've said they've seen down there. Um, I'm only maybe 25 minutes from that particular area, and I know I've gone in there and spent some time myself, and it's, uh, you know, it's a creepy vibe. It's a foreboding place. I haven't had any, you know, personal experiences myself, but there are a lot of people that I think are very credible, um, very objective people who said that they've observed some weird things in there, but um, a large, hairy man or hairy ape is uh, certainly one of them. And a lot of it there goes back to Native American folklore because they had a uh, very, very large presence in that particular part of New England. So, of course, you know, they have reports of hairy men that go back thousands of years in their culture as well. So it's uh, it's an interesting area, to say the least. Mm-hmm. And this goes, uh, I guess, to follow up on, on John's question as well, is that um, there are so many, you know, I mean, we can go back through history and find uh, reports of Bigfoot. And one of the most famous, of course, was the attack on the cabin, uh, where they say they one of the participants actually shot one of them and he fell 400, 400 feet uh, down a a uh, cliff, and when they went in the morning, the the body wasn't there. Is is it? Why do the bodies disappear? Is it some type of, uh, you know, they, they take their dead with them, or or is it, you know, more, showing more intelligence, or or what's your theory on that? Yeah, the thing is that um, <clears throat> if you would ask me if I'm a believer or not, I would just put it this way. I think the reasons for the existence of a creature like this are more plausible than the reasons that it doesn't exist. Uh, And the first thing science says, where's the body? Where's the body? That seems to be the go-to thing, where's the body? Uh, I think, again, you have to look at an animal's instinctive behavior. Not so much domestic pets anymore because we've pretty much bred the instinct out of this. We have designer dogs now and things like mm-hmm. that. But animals in the wild, <clears throat> when they are injured or they're sick, they will tend to go off into very, very desolate regions uh, to get away from the pack or to get away from anything that may take advantage of them in a vulnerable state. I don't think animals look at like, well, I'm dying or anything like that, but I think that they will go off into caves or hide themselves in order to, number one, recover, and number two, uh, in that vulnerable state to protect themselves from something or some, you know, somebody that would prey on them. So if you look at it from through that lens, then this could explain why there aren't bodies. Because two largest apex predators, bears and mountain lions, if you ask any hunter if they've ever come across the carcass, the only times really that they ever have for the most part is when they've been killed by hunters and left there. You know, um, when you are in a very damp, wet region, it doesn't take long for the earth to reclaim that body because you have predation, you have insects, you have fungus, especially in the type of environments that uh, primates uh, thrive in. So those two things could easily explain why 
you know, the body hasn't been found yet because just the instincts of animals to just go off by themselves to recover and protect themselves. Well, you actually you actually picked up on uh, mentioned something there that I thought was really obvious in that you know, if you drop a, a large lump of meat off a cliff, something's going to come along and eat it. And uh, the Bigfoot does seem to exist, coexist in an area, if it exists at all, um, of other predators like wolves, coyotes, foxes. So, you know, it's a ready meal. Absolutely. Uh, for yeah, the most but... part, when, pe- when people hunt bears, for example, Steve, they will, if you have a 400-pound black bear or brown bear, um, they will go into the woods, track this down, shoot it, follow the blood trail. And what they'll do is cut out the pieces of meat that they want. These are humans who do this. Cut out the pieces of meat that they want and transport them and leave the carcass there. Um, figuring, rationalizing, well, we'll just leave this for, you know, for predators. We'll leave it for the animals to feed on. Uh, it doesn't take long for that carcass to disappear at all. No, no. Could it could it be more on the other end though, where where there is some type of intelligence, especially since they've been able to elude man for so long, and well, yeah. other creatures have tend to uh, interact with them, or, or been you know, as we talked about, Steve talked about going into the garbage and stuff. Uh, is mm-hmm. it is it more intelligence? Is that a possibility? Yeah, if you've evolved to the point of reason, to be able to reason, because primates, you know, chimpanzees display, I mean, we we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. Mm-hmm. And we know with experiments on them the amazing things that they can do. I mean, they could go to work in a Walmart at this point, and you wouldn't know the difference. Uh, uh, they're, very inte- they're very intelligent. All apologies to Walmart there and Walmart shoppers, but they're, they're exceedingly intelligent. And if you combine instinct with the ability to reason, I say, why not? Because we certainly did. We evolved to that point ourselves. So this is probably not an apt comparison, but let's take into example somebody like a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy, uh, not to equate them with Bigfoot, but these were people who were able to hide in plain sight and not draw any attention to themselves, living in an environment, one in Los Angeles and one in Milwaukee, which are metropolitan areas, but they knew enough not to do anything that would draw attention to them so they could carry out you know, their, their grotesque deeds. To do that is because while they are you know, obviously sociopaths and psychopaths, they did have the ability to reason because they were high-functioning sociopaths. So if a creature can develop the ability to reason combined with um, their own animal instincts, why wouldn't they hide from um, from something that kind of looked like them that posed the threat? Mm-hmm. I like the analogy to Walmart employees, having visited one recently. Um, the employees, perhaps not, but certainly some of the shoppers. And I make no apologies because I'm 3,000 miles away, so they can't <laughs> <laughs> so, Ken, if someone's interested more in, in Bigfoot, where would you recommend them to go? And, and there are, are there, like, meet-up groups for a Bigfoot and so forth? Probably uh, at Walmart. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Walmart. Um, 
Well, you got to, you know, and again, a lot of this comes from great ape behavior. And while there aren't any fossil records of great apes here, um, it's theorized that this evolved from a creature called Gigantopithecus, who lived in uh, the Asiatic region, uh, Vietnam, China, Indonesia, and maybe followed early man across the Bering Strait when it wasn't uh, a body of water. Um, so this is how they migrated into this country because they went extinct about 10,000 years ago. And if that's the case, that meant they walked among early man. So this is probably why if they're coming into Alaska, that the Pacific Northwest, you know, they went a little further South into a little more temperate and wet zone, which they thrive in. So, this part of the country, I mean, in New England, I mean, I think that your chances improve if you're willing to travel because there are regions of the country, Texas, Louisiana, Florida, and especially the Pacific Northwest, the states I mentioned, Washington, Oregon, Northern California. That seems to be um, the hot spot for those type of things. But in terms of the general region, it's not a question of walking two miles into the woods. It's more a question of walking 20 miles into the woods, mm -hmm. um, sometimes in very unforgiving territory. So you've got to be willing to be up for that type of thing. But those are the type of environments that probably give you the best chance of having an experience. Once, once again, how can people find, uh, you know, like people to uh, talk about this and, and to, uh, you know, maybe get into involved with them as far as, expeditions and stuff. Is there a, a website they could go to or, or is there uh, a meetup group or, or, or anything like that? Yeah, I think you would, the best thing would be to do is do an online search, you know, a Bigfoot expedition. It would probably be as easy as that. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times there's an organization called BRFO, Bigfoot uh, Research Organization, and they organize some things where um, people will... Um, you know, uh, to benefit their their uh, their society, their organization, that they would organize some things. Um, things like that may get a little pricey, but the the positive is you will be probably taken into regions where there have been sightings, and you're going to be with some very very experienced people and be able to learn a lot from them. So um, I would just caution everybody, just because you know. Uh, Ken DaCosta from Rise Up Paranormal is going on a Bigfoot expedition that you don't necessarily say, wow, here's my chance. Um, mm -hmm. The first thing you want to do is do a little work on me or anybody and find out if they know what they're doing or if they're just going to lead you off a cliff someplace. <laughs> I know some ghost groups like that, too, by the way. <laughs> yes, indeed. Some almost. All right, Ken, uh, I know we're coming down to the end of the show. Uh, for your own personal website and stuff, if people want to get in touch with you to find out more about Rise Up Paranormal and, and, you, and yourself, how can they do that? Well, you can visit riseupparanormal.com on the web, or you can find us on Facebook, Rise Up Paranormal. We're here in uh, the state of Rhode Island. And uh, there's a lot of things on our website that have 
something to do with us and a lot of things that just have something to do about the field in general. You'll find a little crypto information on there. Uh, we're building that database more and more and more now. So uh, I always tell people, please, you know, there's a contact page in there. If anybody has a question or you're looking for maybe a visit to, you know, a, a site, whether that's uh, – you know, in entails uh, ghosts, hauntings, UFO, Bigfoot out in the woods, you know, contact us and talk to us a little bit about it. We'd be more than happy to pay you a visit or just have a conversation about it. Or if you just want to stop in and say hello, you know, we always encourage that. Uh, so that's where you can find us, RiseUpParanormal.com. And we're also on, uh, we're also on Facebook. Oh, that was... Uh enlightening uh answered a lot of questions that i was curious about uh steve i one thing i you mentioned that there was a group in the uk that, that uh oh now that, you ask me well, fortunately i just shut the page down about a minute ago I don't know a second. <laughs> no that's all right no that's that's fine steve i was just curious about it because there is there's a U, yeah there's a uk bigfoot hunters or uk bigfoot searches a google search will easily flush that one out and I mean, is are there that many reports in in the UK about Bigfoot? Well, I said there was one just this week past, uh, but looking back down through the diary of uh, reports and sightings, they do seem to be. Um, although the group has got a slightly more diverse interest in big cats and other uh, cryptids, the mm. UK does seem to throw up the occasional regular Bigfoot sighting. Um, so. We seem to have them over here. Now that that I find intriguing. Uh, I find that to be more than intriguing. Yeah, it's it's it, 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 on so many levels. I find it more difficult to believe than yeah, exactly else. because I mean we we are a relatively small island, and um, I don't think uh, whilst we do have some native populations of bizarre animals, including the wallaby. <coughs> Um, you know, I, I don't think you, we would uh, miss a Bigfoot or a large um, ape. Okay. But hey, you know, Ken, Ken, I just thought of something. You know, everybody's getting this DNA uh, uh, research done on themselves and ancestry and everything else. And uh, mm -hmm. what do you think? You think Bigfoot will show up in somebody's DNA somewhere along the line? Well, there has been... Um... There was a woman named, oh, God, Meldra. Who knows Elizabeth name. Warren, then? <laughs> yeah. I was, was going to touch that, but yeah. <laughs> she was, uh, she's a veterinarian in Texas. She came up with a DNA sample, and um, this didn't really pass peer review very well. Okay. Uh, but they finally released her findings in a journal after a number of years, and what she claimed is this sample shows that these creatures and humans crossbred like 15,000 years ago. And there is um, something in the DNA that shows a human mother. Uh, so it's a hybrid. But um, to be honest with you, it really didn't pass muster. Once yeah. um, DNA specialists, you know, got hold of the sample and, you know, read what she wrote. But I would say that it can't be ruled out because, again, they shared the planet with Homo sapien, early man, 10,000 years ago. Right. Um, so 
I think that uh, in Russia, for example, there have been some people that they have taken blood samples from that seem to have the DNA of at least um, characteristics of a primate in a certain region of Russia. So I would not ever be so quick to rule that out at all. Mm -hmm. Now, the other thing is is Bigfoot cries. Have there been anyone reputable recorded that cannot be explained? Well, they say they do. And like I said, in some cases, they've gotten these whoops and howls and, you know, you see people out there trying to mimic it and see if they get something back. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's no different than, you know, a duck call or a deer call or anything that sure. hunters you. So they use this. And in some cases, there's some pretty compelling data when they when they we were talking about databases with Steve, where they bring them to these people who have every known animal um, sound in a database. And from that vocal footprint, they can determine exactly, you know, um, what that animal is. But there have been instances where they said that uh, they're puzzled. They well, they're well, they're not they're, they're not saying it's a bigfoot, but uh, they're saying that time. they can't identify it. Ken, we've run out of time, so I'm gonna have to say goodbye to you. Before you oh, to okay. Say goodbye, Ron. Um, I so just found there's a company in Louisiana making bigfoot calls for hunters. Yeah, and I, and I also found out that the, the loudest uh, decibel uh, creature on Earth is the howling monkey. So there you go. So anyways, you've been listening to uh, Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Foss and Ron Kolick and our special guest, Ken DaCosta. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in next week. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.